This is Classic Business with Michael Avery on Classic 1027 in Gauteng and Fine Music Radio in Cape Town. Time for our brand new feature here on Classic Business in partnership with Eltron. And we've called it View from the C-Suite because we want to bring you closer to the business leaders around the boardroom table, be they CEOs or founders even, chief financial officers, chairs. And we want to find out what makes them tick, what keeps them up at night, gets them out of bed every morning and really drives them to excel in the world of business. And we generally get to speak to uh, CEOs twice a year during results. And this offers us insights beyond just the numbers, a sort of fly in the boardroom uh, sort of view, so to speak. And our first guest was probably deemed a fly by some of his larger incumbent competitors in the insurance industry, but is rapidly growing beyond just nuisance value to their dominance. Jonathan Walker, the founder and CEO of Granadella, which is an insurance disruptor of some note. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks very much, Michael. Good to be on the show. Okay, first things first. Nobody dreams of being an insurance disruptor from high school. or Maybe they do. I, I see your career path started inside a bank. What did you dream of doing when you were still a student? To be honest, I was a bit um, vague on that. Finished school without much of an idea. And it was actually my father who kind of put me on the path of the techie scene in those days. I sort of took a, a gap year, or ended up being an 18-month gap year. He sort of headed me down the path of doing um, which was very new in those days. This was late 90s. So I did a, a software development course for a year and then got a, was lucky enough to land a spot in the grad program at FNB. So I started my career at FNB in Bank City and Town and did a two-year grad program. And then the dot-com uh, bubble burst and your father thought, yeah. what the hell have yeah. I done? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, uh, wasn't great timing. I sort of in the midst of Y2K, if you remember all that, yeah. all that crap. Jeez, so it was full on and then the dot-com bubble burst. So I actually finished the graduate program and then started consulting because I thought consulting would be offer me a much wider opportunity to sort of get my hands dirty in multiple sectors instead of being just stuck in yeah. financial services. So that's what I did. So I started working for, started contracting to Dimension Data, to the government, to other banks, to retail, to all kinds of stuff. And just, what sort of techie stuff were you doing at that stage? Uh, all development, so all software development. Yeah, it was, you know, programming various different things. Websites in those days were a big thing. Um, backend systems for banks, I was doing a lot of backend stuff. And I sort of found my niche. I was very interested in trading all from sort of just after school, sort of like I think also probably from my father, to be honest. Um, he did some stock market trading. So I kind of found my niche in that sector, in the financial sector, doing trading software. And that's where I ended up spending most of my career after that. I ended up in the bank in Santa Barbara, working for online share trading, and then went overseas and spent seven years in London. I um, see that. You got your MBA from Vits in the mid-2000s, then left shortly afterwards for the UK. What prompted that move? Yeah, it was quite a fork in the road, to be honest. I was very much of, my, of the opinion that I wanted to start, up, start my own business and that my own business was the way forward. I wanted to always be my own boss. I suppose I was effectively being a contractor, but I wanted to kind of run something and, and grow something that was successful, that could hire people and be, be fruitful. But I also wanted to travel, and I, I had opportunity. I was very lucky to have an opportunity to get overseas, and what was a plan for two years ended up being seven. So You got to scratch both itches, but uh, yeah. over that time, the global financial crisis hit. So not only had you been through the dot-com uh, yeah. bubble at first, <laughs> You're now in the center of global finance in the city, and you must have thought, oh, whoops, or this is a great time to learn. Yeah, I mean, it was. I mean, you know, at, at the time I was in um, 2008 crash, I was working for the biggest brokerage in Europe, commodity brokerage. We took a massive smack, to be honest. 
as everybody did. I think our staff complement went from 200-ish to 50-ish. So it was a big wake-up call for a lot of us, I think, a lot of banks, a lot of the city generally. But um, it was good. You know, luckily I managed to stick around and keep going. And um, they were obviously heavily, heavily reliant on software. And I think they, or a lot of the banks in London and the guys that I ended up working for realized that software was their product. Um, Think to put a lot of money into and to invest into. So it was, yeah, sort of, I was in the right place at the right time, you to know, be honest. Riding that wave, you then returned to the country in early 2014, it looks like, and you yeah. started CodeFunk. That's right. Yeah, so met my wife overseas. We had two kids overseas, then decided she's South African as well, just by chance, as a lot of a lot of us were over there at the Well, time. you can't help bump into Zaffers in, no, you uh, can't. in London. I mean, Southwest, yeah, you can't. <laughs> very odd that you bump into a British person to be honest um, <laughs> so we were always planning she was the same she had spent 12 years there she had planned for two so we kind of both were keen to come back to South Africa and and let our kids grow up here you know the lifestyle is great and the country's great and whatever and our families here so we came back and then I thought well perfect timing I've got a little bit of cash to invest um, start a business two kids but the, not the greatest timing but I don't think there's ever great timing so it was decent enough timing and um yeah, I started CodeFunk, ran that for four years-ish. and um, Profitably? It was, yeah, it was. We weren't for <laughs> first six or nine months or so, and then we f- turned a profit, and then we were profitable, quite profitable actually after that. So. so then you sold a business that was quite profitable, actually earning an income, to go through the drama of launching an insurance business with no income. We- <laughs> are, are you mad? <laughs> well, uh, that's the question my wife asked me. Um, yeah, I think, you know... It, Basically, what we did, how this kind of evolved out of CodeFunk days was we did a lot of experimentation within the software company to experiment in new technologies and to offer. We were back in financial services, mainly dealing with banks and the like, sort of back in my forte. And uh, we sort of we did a lot of experimentation to find future tech products that we could offer to our clients to kind of stay ahead of the curve. And in doing this, one of the projects that I was sort of looking at, I sort of look, uh, I had a personal experience firstly, where my laptop and cell phone were stolen. My car was car jammed and um it took the insurance company eight weeks to sort the claim out, which was just drove me mad. It's ridiculous, but that is uh, the general experience with most people when dealing with uh, insurance companies in yeah. this age where everything's expected. You know, the digital natives want everything instantly. They do. They do. And I mean, I think, you know, these kind of assets are extremely important. So for me, that was, that was my life, my connection to the world. You know, it really was. Um, my laptop and my phone were crucial. So I kind of went the next day and bought a new laptop and a new phone and just hoped that the insurance company would pay and took a long eight weeks. And I just thought, well, you know, there's a great opportunity here to disrupt this industry from this technologies that we were using within the banks. I thought, you know, we could use a lot of this technology to kind of validate and prove and do a lot of the underwriting up front. So when it does come to a claim stage, we can just instantly kind of prove that it's valid or not. And if it's valid, then sort you out quickly. So that's kind of how we entered. So we sort of spun it out as a side project within CodeFunk to experiment with it, experiment with the technology and then share tech sector, which was very new at that day, at that stage. Um, this was sort of mid-2017. Um, yeah. And then effectively what happened was I sort of negotiated one of my clients I was very open with and honest with, and I was traveling to the UK quite a bit with them and um, said to them, you, you know, if mind, do you mind if I talk to a few venture capitalists while we're chatting to them anyway because they were raising funding? And I um, spoke to venture capitalists in the UK and they said to me, you know, definitely, you're on, a, you're on a good record, yeah? You're perfectly timed. There's a big insurtech movement. So if I were you, I would, I would try this. So, and so you went and raised some Series A round funding. From so we no actually. So what happened then was I decided to sell CodeFunk. This client bought CodeFunk. We came to quite a an easy separation. Um, I kind of sold the team, kept the IP for the InsureTech project and ran with it, and kept one of my 
or managed to convince them that one of my star developers needed to come with me. So the two of us basically just sat in the office and hacked away for nine months, hoping that we'd get something going successfully. Well, actually for three months we did it, sort of bootstrapped ourselves, and then my brother stepped in, who's also now still on the board. He put some seed funding in, which managed to tick us over for the next five or six months. Now that your friends, families and fools yeah, uh, it was, in yeah. the beginning, yeah. <laughs> Very much that. And then we, we managed to meet Bright along the way, who is our underwriter, who were, yeah, great, have been a great partner, and we were very lucky to meet them when we did. Because we had a, by that stage, we had a working product, a fully fully working product. I mean, we had an end-to-end product that did everything. Talk to me about the product. And Granadella, the name. Uh, passion fruit has got yeah, to be in there yeah, somewhere. No. <laughs> very much so. I mean, um, to give you a bit of background on this, we, we were going to call ourselves Peppermint, and um, we started registering trademarks and very quickly realized that peppermint wasn't a wasn't wasn't a good name there's peppermint there's multiple peppermints of everything so we looked for something unique and we wanted something fresh and fruity something different something very much not a walk-in and corporates walk-in associates so fresh and fruity unique to south africa granadilla is exactly like you say is south african south american and spanish that's the only countries in the world that know what granadilla is so it is very unique so it helped it helps us with i'll talk more about our global expansion plans now, but we kind of we wanted to register trademarks globally. Mm. We wanted to register uh, plan for that and have a fresh and fruity and unique name. So that's how it sort of came about. But yeah, very much passion fruits in there. I think you know we could. Uh, yeah, it's it's fruity, it's spicy. I mean, it's, it's a um, great name. It's it is. It's one of those. It's almost like apple. You know, in the in yeah. the beginning, yeah. where, you know, the, the Steve Jobs story and uh, how to differentiate yourself. Really interesting. Just wait right there, Jonathan. We have to find out what's happening out on the roads with Cacleo after the short break. This is Classic Business with Michael Avery on Classic 1027 in Gauteng and Fine Music Radio in Cape Town. Welcome back to The View from the C-Suite, brought to you by Ultron. My guest in studio is Jonathan Walker, the CEO and co-founder of insurtech company Granadella. The product, though, is really what you live and die on. And in an industry that has been quite slow to adapt, insurtech, as you said, was only really starting to, to hit the uh, the radar screens of the VCs in 2016-17. Yeah. Uh, the big insurers have been like lumbering giants. They haven't been able to ping off those uh, restraints just yet. No. And it seems obvious, though. If you look at um, adding insurance to your Airbnb purchase, for example, it's just a matter of time before big tech starts to play in this space as well. What is your solution and your approach to insurance? Well, I think, yeah, we very much, I think where we differentiate a lot is um, my background. We're very much a tech company that started insurance rather than a big traditional insurance doing tech which is a lot of what our competitors are to be honest and internationally yeah. and and locally a lot of them are you know actuaries or have been in the insurance game for a long time now they're struggling they're doing tech and they're struggling with it and a lot of them have bluntly told me they are struggling with it so i think we approach it very differently we learned insurance very quickly we had to you know i've been in the financial services game for a long time i knew the hurdles were there i knew there would be lots of regulatory hurdles to climb the barriers to entry are higher but i I sort of prepped for that. I thought we had a great. I think technology is our real advantage. You know, we've, we're very good at tech. That's what that's what we do very very well, and um, we continue to do that well. We continually innovate and build on the tech. We don't rest on our laurels, and I think um, that's where we're winning. You know, we we're winning because it's slick, it's easy. It's but on the regulatory front, I mean, you admitted uh, those are yeah. some of the, the the moats, as Warren Buffett would call them, to the incumbent players. Very much so. So we're very lucky to have partnered with Bright, and I think that's why it's been such a good partnership, is that they kind of take a lot of that load off us, most, almost all of it. So they're a great partner. I mean, um, 
they do the regulatory for us. You know, we kind of submit, obviously, certain things to them on a monthly basis, but they kind of deal with the regulator. And they are very helpful. And I think for them, also being a traditional insurer, initially we were doing things very differently, very quickly, very disruptively. And um, we kind of went into the into the agreement, into the partnership on that basis, basically saying we are going to disrupt, we are going to move quickly, we are going to, we're going to rapidly do things. Surprised them maybe a little bit initially how quickly we did move, um, but they've been great in getting up to speed with us and helping us along to move quickly. Talk to me about that growth phase, because very often when you chat to uh, guys who specialize in scaling up businesses, I think of yeah. Jason Goldberg at Edge yeah. Growth, and he says that very often your founder, your inventor, your tinkerer doesn't make a great CEO. And it's very difficult to transition from yeah. that space into a 10x, 10 times scale business. How yeah. have you approached that? How have you found that journey? It is, you know, to be honest, it's difficult to let your hands go of the reins sometimes, which I still dig into the code quite a lot, which I think frustrates my, <laughs> frustrates my developers. But um, I'm still a very hands-on CEO. So I sort of almost call myself CEO, CTO. You know, I play both roles, I think. I think we are, like I said, very much a tech company. I think I need to be very hands-on with that and stay ahead of the technology. But I've got a great team of developers that help me along with that. But then exactly, I think from a strategic point of view, a lot of my time now is kind of spent um, on the marketing perspective with my marketing director, looking at strategic growth, looking at the strategic kind of view of the company going forward and scaling quickly and rapidly, which we do. So I think we, we do two things very well. Um, we're continually evolving the tech. So we've got a customer experience team that's crucial to the success of this business. The tech we, very so- we know is very solid, but we're continually improving it. We don't rest on our laurels, like I said. We release new software every two weeks, on average, our customer experience team talk to our customer base a lot. I mean, they're kind of on the phone all day, every day, not outbound sales. They're phoning customers saying, how's your experience? Do you struggle? If people get stuck, they help them. We get a lot of feedback from customers directly. We get a lot of very good feedback. We get a lot of um, love letters to Nandi, our bot. <laughs> a lot of interesting feedback, but um, we use that feedback to continually change the software, mm. to continually to be able to attract the right customers the new, and new customers and offer them the products that they want. We don't want to dictate. We don't. We, we don't want to be a insurance company that dictates what products we offer. We want the customers to tell us that what they want. We we get enough requests for it. We build it and give it to them. The beauty of a platform that uh, can iterate quickly and be responsive. Exactly, and I think um, yeah, there's two factors there that are well, three I suppose: the customer feedback, the tech, which can scale very quickly, and we can add new products extremely quickly. Um, and we own the tech. I think what's a a huge benefit to us here is that we own the tech from top to bottom. Every line of code we've written from scratch. We we don't integrate any systems. It's a completely standalone system. So we can move and change things very quickly. We can onboard new products extremely quickly, which, yeah, like I said, Bright are great in helping us with. They've come up to speed with us, and they now get, they get onto things very, very quickly, which is great. So we continue to evolve and just... Um, so we're doing that in South Africa. We're building our customer base here. We kind of and you mentioned you've got a global growth strategy already that you planned from the very beginning when you were sitting down thinking about the name. Yeah, we did. I mean, I think um, it was always my kind of plan. Um, I suppose living in London and travelling like I have, um, you know, you kind of you see the the potential of global scaling as a tech company these days. It's it's fairly straightforward if you do it properly from scratch. You know, we sort of we built the architecture as cloud based. It's fully containerized, not to get too technical, but fully containerized, fully scalable, fully cloud-based. For us to like switch on in London, for example, would be, it's more regulatory. For us to switch on is very easy, actually. We just change everything to pounds. We've got currency stuff built in. We've got localization for language built in. We can just, you know, we could launch in France. Kind of, we, it's more the regulatory access and then we can just switch it on. So that's very important, I think, for us to scale as a business and to get ex- extreme, like we're on the J-curve now, I would, I would say like, 
At the beginning of this year, we were at the bottom of the J-curve, but we're definitely now on that J-curve. We're climbing significantly. But, you know, as soon as we obviously expand into international markets, then we, that growth curve will just accelerate. Now, talk to me about the tech and the use of bots, because you, you use bots in a lot of the processes. And you mentioned, yeah. Nandi, earlier, especially signups and claims. What is the place of tech versus humans in this space, broadly, you look at the industry? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you'll sort of, you'll know, uh, a lot of there's been, there's a, a huge uh, sort of, a lot of banks jumped on the bandwagon for bots three, four years ago. Financial services were... A lot of bodies littered on those early shores as well because yeah, they, they didn't are. quite understand what they were exactly. doing initially. Exactly. There were a lot of disaster stories, really. I think people who don't understand tech and put a bot in front of the customer and started, you know, the bot started getting a little bit too clever and answering the wrong things and... There have been cases of, you know, bots insulting customers and et cetera, et cetera. So <laughs> I think there have been disaster stories. But um, And there's been very much a recent trend in the last year or so of that people don't want a bot. They, they want a bot to do most of the automated tasks. That's what we find with that. And I think a lot, of the, a lot of the global trend seems to be that way, is that a bot is available 24-7, 365. It's paperless. It's quick and easy. I mean, you can get, a, you can get cover with us within two minutes your first cover your second cover once you've asked you for your personal details is literally a few taps it can take you 10 seconds i mean it's that quick claims are the same you know claims take you less than a minute we our fastest claims being paid out in 1.7 seconds i mean it's it's extremely quick some people might say well that sounds great but um you know you're underwriting uh, how is that going uh, no underwrites. aren't you exposing yourself to too much risk uh, no we aren't i mean our under underwriters are happy our loss ratio is actually pretty good for what for the for the area we're playing in um i think you know we did we our first product to launch was mobile phones which is the highest risk product so you can imagine our first conversations with underwriters was fairly tricky we said <laughs> he has a great tech stack he has a great app um we want to launch with mobile phones and all of them just said she's you know that's that's not <laughs> such a good idea because generally that's our last leader for home content you know most of them are sitting at 130 140 percent loss we actually way below that um, because we use a lot of algorithms, we use a lot of fraud, we use a lot of behavioral kind of analytics, we use machine data, machine learning. And I think getting back to your point about your AI versus your human, we kind of, we use those together very closely. So we do have a person on the end of the line at any time. So if someone gets stuck, there's a, we've got a customer experience team that are very helpful, very good. So you, we literally do have someone that will phone you back. Or but certainly not either all time scenario. No, no. Yeah. so you will, you know, 80% more even, probably 90% of our, our customers get through the bot easily. The 10% that gets questions, you know, our customer experience team is there to help them. Um, and with the products, now that we've launched more products, we've got 17 products in the market now, we're mitigating our, our risk across from the highest risk being cell phones, although, like I said, we're proving to not be so high risk, but we're mitigating. And for future development, we're looking at, you know, other products that are more, less risky and more profitable, you know, like life products, um, Travel, we've launched fairly recently. Jewelry, which you would think is high risk, but mm. it's proving not to be too high risk. Um, so we kind of, yeah, underwriters are pretty happy with our risk profile so far. So, so far, so good. Jonathan, as we round up uh, what has been a very fascinating conversation, when you look as a tech disruptor at other industries, it seems like every industry is being disrupted at the moment. Are there particular industries that you look at and draw inspiration from that uh, you try and apply the lessons from those industries in yours? Yeah, I think, well, um, you know, fintech obviously is a big driver, I suppose, and tech's really like a, a spin-off out of it. But fintech, you know, you can look at, you know, my kind of inspiration is the big players internationally, like Lemonade, come out of New York. I think they were great. They launched, you know, two and a half years ago now. They were kind of the leaders in the space. Um, Trove's another one. I think they're quite a different offering to us, but they, you know, 
they were these the first sort of entrance to the markets. But um, if you look on the banking perspective, I think that interests me a lot coming from that sector. Like, you know, you look at the Revoluts and the Mongos and those kind of players and the guys have launched here recently, Time Bank and, yeah. you know, One Bank and Discovery now launching into that market. So I think um, that offers inspiration. I think there's there's a lot of um, a lot happening in the space now. And I think there's a lot that we could offer the customer. I think the customer is the end winner here, really, you know, because it's automating, makes it cheaper, makes it more efficient, makes it easier for both parties, effectively. Ultimately, improves your bottom line as a, a company, improves the customer's experience, improves their cost. But I think going forward, you know, like, I think everything will be disrupted. I truly believe that. I've had a few people challenge me on that. So, like, you know, surely not every industry will be disrupted, but I, I struggle to think of anything that won't be. You know, I think, um, you know, there's med techs coming and educational techs coming. I mean, mm. health techs, they're really, uh, it's just endless. Radio is being disrupted by podcasts. It yeah, is yeah. everywhere you look. <laughs> now, just to zoom out and look at South Africa, you came back to South Africa with your wife and your two children because of the lifestyle. And you said mm. it's a great country. It is, yeah. There's a lot of pessimism around at the moment. Is, and yeah. I like to consider myself on the optimistic realist side. I understand yeah. there are a lot of challenges. I understand yeah. ESCOM is going to take years to fix. Yeah. But I still firmly believe that in 2029, 10 years from now, a year out from the NDP, we're going to be better off than we are today. I agree. You obviously agree about Definitely, that. Definitely, yeah. Why? I agree with you. I think, you know, Ramaphosa will be, will be good. I believe we, we've had, a, yeah, I think we've had some, not to get into a political debate, but I think, you know, we've had our tough times. We've had, um, not whether we're at the bottom or not, but I think there is a mass, out, or a lot of people are leaving. I think for the wrong time, you know, we made a conscious decision to come back. Even at the time, it was a difficult and people kind of were questioning our move to be honest, saying why I come back to South Africa. But I think it's a great country. I think there's a lot of opportunity here. I think from an entrepreneurial point of view, I think there's so many opportunities in South Africa. And I think, you know, if we can get the government to see that and offer like they've done in the UK and the US and sort of help the entrepreneurial group sort of just explode, I think a lot of South Africans are naturally entrepreneurs. You know, you see the guys selling stuff on the side of the road and I yeah. think they've got it built in them. I think we, we nice people, we great people, we friendly people, we... We're naturally hardworking, it was proved when I was overseas, you know. My boss directly told me he purposely looked to hire South Africans. And the first company I worked for, because we are, you know, we got good work ethic, we work hard. And I think there's a lot of that in South Africa. I think, you know, there's huge potential here. I truly believe that. So I think, I agree with you. I think we're on a, at the bottom now and we're just going to go up. So Jonathan Walker, CEO and founder of Granadella, sharing his passion for insurance and for South Africa. Jonathan, been a great pleasure. Thanks very much for having me on the show, Michael. Been a great chat. That was Jonathan Walker with your view from the C-Suite brought to you by Ultron Technology Partners in your digital transformation journey. For more information, visit them at ultron.com. Ultron, there when it matters.